Let's open our Bibles this morning first to Genesis chapter 50. Now, uh, I asked the men on Wednesday at the uh, Bible study, I asked for their insight into this. I said, guys, how do I combine um, Mother's Day sermon with a sermon on uh, how to understand what has gone on in the last 10 days? And uh, after much silence, uh, we came to this conclusion. Happy Mother's Day. Now to Genesis chapter 50. We'll go through a variety of scriptures, so just uh, be ready to go. There are a couple places where um, the topic for today is laid out for us and will help us understand it, Uh, but we will begin there, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather here to hear your word. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to it to provide for us understanding. Lord, that we might grasp these things, we might live in confidence and boldness because of them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this morning, I cannot give you specific reasons that will satisfy every question you have as to why in the past this property was destroyed and this property was not, or this family suffered and this family did not, or why this block was destroyed and this block was not or even on a broader scale or broader scope in our own lives. Why do we face tragedies? Why do we have specific joys? Why do we have successes, unexpected blessings, unexpected tragedies, apparent failure of godliness, godliness, the apparent success of godliness? What I hope to give you this morning is this. And and I, I don't know how else to put it, but whether or not we like it, Whether or not we like the outcomes, whether or not we understand what takes place around us, whether or not we understand the actions of Mother Nature, or whether these things benefit us or crush us, that does not change the fact that God alone is sovereign in all things. Whether we like it or not, it does not change the fact that there is nothing in this world that is outside of his control, either his direct or his permissive will. And to many, the next statement may seem uh, narrow, unscientific, uh, stupid. I don't know how else to do it, but I think it is correct. God's existence, God's omnipotence, God's sovereignty does not depend in our belief in those things. They are unto themselves facts. That he is omnipotent that he is sovereign, that he does exist, that he does care for us, and that he is active in this world. Okay, If you ever see the bumper sticker, um, uh, which suddenly escapes me, um, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? There's, there's an unnecessary phrase in there. I don't have to believe it. God said it, that settles it. Whether this world believes it, whether we as his creatures believe it, is not important. He has said it, that settles it. He is the one who's created us and all things around us, whether we like those facts or not. And it seems that we as a country have forgotten that, or somehow this kind of thought has gone out of style. Today we don't often hear about the hand of God or the hand of providence guiding us as a nation, as an example. 
You don't often hear of our leaders stating that the hand of providence has directed us as a nation in this area. Well, it used to be that that was the norm within our understanding of the United States as a nation. Let me give you some examples of that. William Bradford wrote in 1620 of God's providence in forming and gathering that particular group of people there at Plymouth. In the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, the first code of laws that was really established and compiled in New England in 1641, it states that you're not responsible for missing a meeting or a court date if an act or providence of God keeps you from attending. I guess if a tree falls on your horse and you can't make it, that's an act of providence and and you're excused from the meeting. John Adams, in his Chronicle of the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia in 1774, writes, It's Wednesday. Went to Congress again. Heard Mr. Duce read prayers for the day, the seventh of the month. Was most admirably adapted, though this was accidental or rather providential. A prayer which he gave us of his own composition was as pertinent, as affectionate, as sublime, as devout as I have ever heard offered up to heaven. He filled every bosom present. George Washington describes his capture of Boston in 1776 this way. Upon their discovery of the works next morning, great preparations were made for attacking them. But not being ready before afternoon and the weather getting very tempestuous, much blood was saved and a very important blow to one side or the other was prevented. That this most remarkable interposition of providence is for some a wise purpose, I have no doubt. In his original draft of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson had written, and for the support of this declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. But Congress amended that to read this way, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then last, Major General Henry Lee, Light Horse Henry, as he was known, in a tribute to George Washington, the father of this country before the Houses of Congress in 1799, this was 12 days after Washington had died, Lee said, Desperate indeed is any attempt on earth to meet correspondingly this dispensation of heaven, For while with pious resignation we submit to the will of an all-gracious providence, we can never cease lamenting in our finite view of omnipotent wisdom the heart-rending privation for which our nation weeps. Nobody writes like that today. I mean, that that is rich. That is rich there. And just in the way that they construct their words and the deepness of it. The words like heart-rending privation for which our nation weeps at the death of George Washington. Well, the root of the word providence is to see in advance or beforehand or to provide for. And it signifies more than God as a spectator in human events. Much like the deists, some of our founding fathers were just deists. They believed in God. They believed he got the ball rolling and stepped away and watched things from afar. Well... Providence, the hand of the Lord as taught in scripture, gives us the very clear impression and direction that he is involved in the goings-on of everything in this world. 
Westminster Confession says, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. He directs and upholds all things. Westminster Confession or the Shorter Catechism, question 11. God governs the universe and all that is within it. And when I say all, I don't mean just us as believers. I mean everything, all women, all children, all men, all snowflakes, all raindrops, all animals, all blades of grass, all things are under his control. When you talk about the sovereignty of God, you, sovereignty is all-encompassing. It's all or nothing. You are sovereign over all things. If there's one thing you are not sovereign over, you are no longer sovereign. Nothing ever happens that is beyond the scope of his view or for his purpose. The universe is governed this fashion for one purpose, and that is God's glory. Whether we like this or not, whether we understand this or not, that is the way that he has ordered things. It is for his glory. Chance has no influence in reality. Fate is not an entity, and luck, you know, we pitched out luck long ago. We don't believe it. We still might say, oh, good luck. But we understand that that has no effect. That has no power, no authority in this world. It is not an entity. Now, we are, of course, creatures of our own wills. We do make things happen. Yet the causal power we exert is secondary. It is secondary to God's plan. That's why we turn first to Genesis chapter 50. Now, this is the summation of Joseph's life. And I'm not going to go through all of Joseph's life, but you know, his brothers didn't like him. They sold him into slavery. Off he went. He was in prison. He made it to the house of Pharaoh, second in command of Egypt. His brothers came to him. He didn't reveal who he was. On and on and on the story goes. And we come to verse 20 of chapter 50 in Genesis. And this is summing up to his brothers all of these things. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. All of the things that his brothers did to him in an effort to get him out of their lives, they meant for evil, but God had a different purpose in that. He meant it for good. Ultimately, we see this, and we'll see it in a little bit, in the life of Jesus Christ. What was meant by men as evil, to kill this imposter, to kill this one who claims to be the Son of God, they meant it for evil, but in reality it was the salvation of mankind. The salvation of mankind. The scriptures very clearly teach that all things outside of God owe their creation to God and their continued existence. Let me give you a couple examples. Hebrews chapter 1, all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 1, he is before all things. In him all things consist. Acts chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. And Ephesians chapter 4, he is over all, through all, and in all. All, 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 all. You see those words again and again and again in these passages. It's not hyperbole. He's not just saying, well, well, I own, you know, all things. He literally means all things are under his control. B.B. Warfield, who was a theology professor at Princeton for years, writes, it was not an accident that brought Rebekah to the well to welcome Abraham's servant in Genesis 24. 
or that sent Joseph into Egypt, or guided Pharaoh's daughter to the basket in the Nile, or that later directed the millstone to crush Abimelech's head in Judges 9, or directed the arrow shot to smite the king right between the joints of his armor in 1 Kings 22. Every historic event is treated as an item that is orderly carrying out God's plan in the world. You have to be aware of these things. It is God, Job chapter 36, that causes the lightning to strike where he wants it. Where he wants it and he directs it. He who has fixed the boundaries of our lives has at the same time entrusted us with the care of it, provided us with the means of preserving it, forewarned us of the dangers to which we are exposed, and supplied cautions and remedies that we may not be overwhelmed or unaware. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. This is a book that is seldom read in its its, uh, completeness, although there was a Puritan pastor who preached on nothing but Job his entire career. Hundreds of sermons on Job. You'd think he'd have worn them out after that, but nothing but Job his entire professional career in ministry. But we pick often from Job these things that demonstrate who God is to us and how he works in our lives. So, Let's first look at Job chapter 1, verse 1. Job is right before Psalms, right after Esther. And, and we know the story of Job, okay? So we're just going to pick out a couple verses throughout the book and look at those. First off, Job's godliness was undeniable, undeniable. Job 1.1, 1, 1. there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And it's stated again over in verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Okay, his godliness is undeniable, stated twice here in the first eight verses of the book. But Job loses his children, his servants, his livelihood, almost everything he has. His health is, 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 is almost taken from him completely. In a record of satanic opposition, Job is left destitute of all support. His friends come, and first they sit with him in silence. Probably the best thing they could have done is just to been with Job in his misery. But then they open their mouths. Okay? Well, Job, there must be some unconfessed sin in your life. If you would just confess it, then you would get out of this. Now, I actually had a professor at college who was in the hospital, and he was paralyzed. I mean, completely, like, almost like a quadriplegic. It just came upon him one night. He couldn't get out of bed. They took, rushed him off to the hospital. They couldn't figure out what it was. Members of the church where he was, he was on the staff came to him and said, it is now time to confess the sin that has brought you here. You must confess this, and then you'll be released. It was, the, it was the guilt that he was living under and this kind of oppressive thought. It wasn't any sin. He said, I've been through that. I, don't have, I can't think of any other thing. And they said, there must be something. Well, the same type of thing Job's friends are saying. There must be sin, or you wouldn't be suffering this fashion. But all you have to do is look back and see that the Lord and Satan were talking. And the Lord said, 
Look at my servant Job. You have at him. Don't kill him. See what he does. See what he does. And for 40-some chapters, we see how Job wrestles with these things. Now, the the greatest issue that Job really had to face was God's silence on so many of these things. Go to chapter 38 of Job. Now, Job questions God, and when it comes to these types of things, it's good to question God because he's got the answers. Or his spirit will direct you, or his word will help reveal those things to us. They don't give us answers on everything. Okay? When we say, why does God work in this way? It is for his glory. Is that an answer that satisfies you? Hmm. We'll see in a minute whether that satisfies us or not. Well, Job asked these questions of God, and he asked the right person. I always equate it with this. If you have a question about calculus, you don't go to an English literature book looking for answers, right? You go to a calculus book or somebody who understands calculus. You don't go to the English literature teacher. That person didn't pursue math because his mind does not work that way, okay? You go to the person who understands those things. Well, Job went to the Lord. Here in in chapter 38... The Lord gives him some answers. Not that Job really likes the answers to start with. Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. He says, Get ready. Here it comes. And I will ask you and you instruct me. God's being kind of sarcastic here. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Okay? It, what he's saying to Job is, you can question me, but understand, you weren't there when I created everything. I am the one who has all power and all authority and all wisdom and all knowledge. This is Randy's interpretation of it, and I'm sure God was a little bit more compassionate, but he said, now live with it. Okay? I'm the God. You're my creation. Live it and enjoy that fact that I care enough. To provide for you. Well, Job's, the whole point of this is to bring Job to an understanding that there is a distinction between the creator and the creation. He is completely other, completely different. He has all power, all authority, all righteousness, all, all, all goodness. He sees everything correctly. We are tainted by sin. We do not have all righteousness. We do not have all authority. He guides and governs all events and circumstances and the free acts of men and angels, no matter how great or how trivial that they be. All things. We're back to that word. All things. All of this is done to accomplish one thing, and that is God's glory. Whether we like that or not, that is what he tells us. A couple more pages over to chapter 40. And Job... In response to the things from the, God, from the Lord, verse 4, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. He says, Okay, Lord, I'll trust you. I'll be silent before you and wait for you and the answers that come. He says one more thing over in 42. In his last answer to the Lord, verse 2, this is where Job comes to the conclusion of who really God is. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
You can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What we get here is not an answer that says, and you'll tell me why. We don't see that. We just see an understanding of Job, after all he has been through, that he says, you can do all things. Then he shuts up. There's probably no point in Christian doctrine that comes more in conflict with a contemporary worldview than when we talk about God's sovereignty and God's providence. Providence means that God has not abandoned the world that he has created, but works within the creation to manage all things according to the immutable counsel of his will. Westminster again. By contrast, the world at large might agree that, well, yeah, there was a creator, but he has removed himself. He doesn't put, he's not hands-on anymore. He got the ball rolling, and, and now he doesn't interfere in human affairs. So that they, they punt to things like, well, miracles don't happen. Prayer isn't answered. I mean, it make, might make you feel better, but it doesn't actually change anything. Things just happen. Okay? There's nothing we can do to stop these things. Now, of course, there are natural disasters. There are fires. There are earthquakes. We know there are tornadoes. There are floods. Our insurance policies, I think, have something called acts of God in them that are simply, if it's not my fault, it was an act of God. Should we blame God for them? Isn't it better that if we just simply think that he has taken his hands off the world or that he's just doing the best that he can and he can't govern everything? Or do we live with the fact that Scripture teaches that he does govern everything? Everything. All things. There's nothing out of his control. A couple things from Proverbs. It says that an individual may debate with himself about what he will say, but the Lord determines his words. Proverbs 16. The plans of the mind belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. It turns wherever the Lord wills. Actions are also under the sphere of the Lord. A man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Nothing can change the plans and purposes of God. Ah, this is the one I always had trouble with. Okay, Rand, well, it's easy to live with the providence of God, that he's directing things when we obey God. What about when I disobey God? Does that fit in with the providence and the sovereign plan of God if I go specifically against what he says is right? Well, there are plenty of examples of people who have gone against the will of the Lord, and we see his intervention. The best example probably is Jonah. The Lord says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. So where did Jonah go? Tarshish, okay? Nineveh's over there. Tarshish is as far away as you can get. He purposely disobeyed the Lord. So the Lord intervened directly into the world at that point. And we discussed this a little bit in Sunday school. Jesus believed that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. That's, That's all I have to quote. Okay, so therefore I believe it. Now, the Lord had to get Jonah's attention. So he intervened, got this fish, this whale, three days. He didn't digest him. He held him there, took him over to the the coast, spit him up on the coast, and reluctantly 
Jonah fulfilled the calling of the Lord to be the missionary. Preached the shortest and the best sermon ever heard. Okay? Repent for the day of the Lord's at hand. And what happened? All of Nineveh repented. The king even put the cows in sackcloth. Okay? They were serious about it. Unfortunately, a generation later, we see the city of Nineveh has gone right down the tubes. Okay? But God intervened. Even when he was disobedient, it was still the purpose of the Lord. Now, we have to say that the purpose of the providence of God is directed to an end. The flow of all human events is directed to an end. We can oppose them, but we see in the case of Jonah, sometimes you oppose it and the Lord intervenes and says, no, this is where you're going to go. Perhaps you can see in your own life, you've tried, you've heard the Lord wants you to do something and you've gone this way. There are plenty of examples of pastors that I know who said, no, no, I heard the call for years and I just avoided it and avoided it and the Lord finally crushed me one day. I had no other choice but I had to pursue the things that he had laid out for me. Turn to Romans chapter 8. This is perhaps one of the greatest passages in scripture but you have to understand it before you get there because if you don't understand it you will misuse it and it will be like a club an attempt to beat people into understanding but we have to understand who this is directed to chapter 8 verse 28 applies to a very specific and narrow group And we know, this is not hope, this is no, in a sense of assurance. We know that God causes. Who causes? God. And what does he cause? All things. There's that all again. We know that God causes all things to work together for whom? For everybody? No. For the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You cannot say, you know what? That tragedy was for your good. You cannot dump that on somebody until they have a grasp of what this verse means. That if you belong to the Lord, that he is working things out in your life for the good. Now, what is the good? Well, in the fullest sense, our good is to do what we were created for, to give God glory, to serve him. What's the first, first answer, Westminster? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our created purpose. So God works all things for those who are called according to his purpose, who love him, those who belong to Christ, those who have been saved. He causes all things in our lives to work for that purpose, and that is his good. The definition of good is his alone. It is not my definition of good because mine is very likely different from the Lord sometimes. Okay? We can't say that my good is consistent with the righteousness or happiness of Randy or the earthly success of Randy. That is not necessarily the way the Lord looks at good. To work for the good of those who love God and called according to his purpose. All things. That means evil as well. Sometimes evil comes into our lives and the Lord is using that for his purposes. For his purposes purposes. 
And whatever God purposes to do is, by definition, good. Elizabeth Elliot said, you know, God does, I'm paraphrasing, does exactly what he wants, and he's under no obligation to tell us why. He's under no obligation to tell us why. This is the essence of providence, that God does what he purposes because in its essence it is good. We as sinful men and women may not understand that. But it's good because it is from God. There are other areas where we see things happen in our lives. We see it from scripture, things, bad things that seem to happen. David, Saul is chasing David for years and years. David has to live in, in the caves. Saul's trying to kill him. David's own son tries to kill him. But yet the Lord is using that for his good. Hosea suffers through this marriage to Gomer again and again in her unfaithfulness. Why? Because the Lord has that plan for his good and for the greater purposes in illustrating his love for Israel. And, of course, the hatred directed towards Christ. Man meant it for evil. The Lord meant it for good. Remember, Isaiah said it was the Lord's will to crush him. The Lord's will to crush him. Okay, does this knowledge, and that's what we've had today, does this knowledge somehow of providence somehow ease the pain when these events come along in our lives? For some it will. Okay? For some we'll be able to rest in this fact that God is in control. I don't have to understand it. All I have to do is rest in it. I may not like it, but it is his plan being worked out in my life. For some of us we'll sense a peace knowing God, how God has acted in the past that he is faithful to act that way in the future. It won't change our pain. It won't change our struggle. It won't change our loss. But it will give us peace in that sense. For others, it won't ease their pain, okay? It won't come anywhere near that. The only thing that will give them comfort in the midst of loss is when those who understand these things act with compassion and mercy and as servants to them to minister the things of the gospel to those who are suffering. That we are, in a sense, the hand of God and the hand of providence reaching out to them and caring for them. Mr. Westenhoff, who, who wrote a book about the death of his son, said he didn't want people to come and talk to him. He didn't want people to come and give him you know, words of any wisdom. He said, come and sit on my morning bench with me. Just come and be with me, okay? Be the gospel right next to me. Like Job's friends before they open their mouths. Come and demonstrate the love of Christ by caring enough to be with me. Actions of compassion and sacrifice, sometimes simply the presence, this will be the factor that communicates the providence and love and grace of God to people. They will understand God. They will understand how he works by how we live these things out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is not an easy issue to chew on. Because we like understanding. We like to know why. We like to know when. We like to know how. The why is you cause all things to happen for your glory. 
But we wrestle with these issues of how these terrible things, how these natural disasters, how these personal tragedies in our own lives, how, how do they fit in with your glory? How do they fit in for we who are called according to your purpose? How are they acting for our good? These are things that we wrestle with, Lord, and we, we come to you for answers. And we know that sometimes you answer yes, sometimes you answer no, sometimes you answer later. When you answer later, we simply have to rest in that. At some time, you will reveal these things to us. Whether they are here in this world or, or when we stand before you and, all, and we no longer see through this glass dimly, but we see you and our Heavenly Father and, and you will reveal these things to us in understanding. Till that time, Lord, we will cling to your promises because you don't change. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is how you act. This is what you say.